want to thank our music camp for the blessing they've been this week. And we look forward to doing this again. So last night we had a wonderful concert, which we could experience some pretty amazing things, considered some of these young people had not picked up something like a cello before the week began, but they had a little cello ensemble up here, did a fantastic job. And the power of music to shape the culture of a mind is not been thought about enough lately. Music is not amoral. Music is very moral. And the music chosen shapes the life of its expressor or its experiencer. So I want to thank Daniel Cerna and his team And may the Lord bless them as they continue a ministry of educating our young people in the ennobling, beautifying, and uplifting power of true Christian music. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time to gather. Thank you for the rain this week which watered the earth and makes our things grow. And now, Lord, I pray for your spirit to come water our hearts, give us humility, Through your presence, discernment. Through your presence, courage and comfort. Guide us now, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm entitled this last in a series of sermons on education, The Kingdom and the Cult. I'm going to use a definition from Wikipedia because I believe it expands the understanding of cult as it needs to be understood today. Cult used to be a word associated with religious tradition or religious novelty that was not of traditional orthodoxy or traditionally accepted Christian teachings. But I appreciated this definition from Wikipedia. It says, in modern English, a cult is a social group that is defined by its unusual religious, spiritual, and to that point we could say this is still a very typical definition, but it goes on to say, or philosophical beliefs. And it is in that componentry that the authors of Wikipedia are deviating from the typical definition of a cult. Now I'm going to read that sentence again. In modern English, a cult is a social group that is defined by its unusual religious, spiritual, or philosophical beliefs, or by its common interest. That also is a new understanding of the word cult in a particular personality, object, or goal. This sense of the term is controversial having divergent definitions both in popular culture and academia, and has also been an ongoing source of contention among scholars across several fields of studies. The word cult is usually considered pejorative, and pejorative means negative. Now, I'm starting this message with absolutely or mainly no interest in talking about religious cults. It used to be back in the 1950s or so and before that Seventh-day Adventists were considered a cult. Walter Martin wrote his book in the 1960s entitled The Kingdom of the Cults. 
And over a period of time, Walter Martin came to an understanding that Seventh-day Adventists were not a cult by the traditional Orthodox understanding of a belief in God's grace, the atonement on the cross, and a variety of these other very solid biblical pillars that support not only the broad spectrum of Christendom, but Seventh-day Adventism as well. But this morning, my interest is not in reflecting upon whether Seventh-day Adventists are or not a cult. Most of us gathered here today have found a living Christ in a beautiful message that makes sense of the broad strokes of salvation, not just sacrifice on a cross, but mediation through a high priest by the name of Jesus Christ. And beyond that, final judgment on sin and vindication for God's people in the last chapters of that sandbox illustrator, the sanctuary of the Old Testament. And what we understand today as Seventh-day Adventists is that Jesus not only paid the price of dying for our sins, but Jesus then mediated His own blood and is in these last days vindicating His people before He returns in a final act of judgment prior to that second coming. Yes, today, most of us gathered here today will follow the beautiful truths of a relationship with Jesus irregardless of whether or not we're called a cult. But my interest today is to make sure we all understand the broader ramifications of our humanity, our tendency to social conformity, and our regular um, proclivity to failing to do what the Spirit of Prophecy directs us to do, and that is to be not mere reflectors of other men's thoughts. So this morning, I'm going to go on a little bit of a journey. I'm going to address what I believe is the tendency of the human heart, which is to associate itself with someone or something that shields it from doing the heavy lifting, the heavy, hard, introspective thinking. And it gives to somebody else what is a God-ordained responsibility and privilege, and that is to think for oneself. Now, I had a visit the other day with a friend of mine. I specifically asked for a little bit of his time because we tend to feel differently about certain things related to the last year's experience with the COVID. And it appears that even in our own community, it's hard for us to let go of this chapter. But come the end of this month, unless there's a renewal of masking law in Michigan, we will return to the normal placement of ourselves in the pews. And for many, not all, and we respect people's individual rights to this, the absence of a new form of facial wear and when it's all said and done, we might get back to what was normal, but we might not ever as well. And so because even in our own community, it appears that we've moved from a dialogue about masking to a dialogue about injections, it seems to me that if ever there was a time for us to make sure that we are not following our predisposed tendency 
to let somebody else do our thinking that we ought to think about this for a little bit. Now, the problem is, is that everything that is said from this pulpit, be it by me or somebody else, is oftentimes sieved or filtered through a political lens. Because most people today, I think, have abandoned the idea that there's a triune God who has the power to reign over men and turn the hearts of the king like a river and rearrange circumstance according to his divine prerogative. So let me do the hard part first. And I'm going to tell you today, I think there are two main cults operative in America. One is ideologically conservative. It does happen to have a personality at its head. The other is ideologically, I could use the word progressive, I think I'll use the word liberal. There does not appear to be at the head of this side a personality. In my dialogue with this individual, of whose opinion I value, he made a very interesting observation, of which I'm going to repeat here today. If you were to divide the world down those two camps that I just described, and hopefully I do justice to what he said, in effect what he said, and I completely agree with him, is that if the divide was clearly made and we were to put the liberals on this side and the conservatives on this side amongst the whole corpus or the whole body of the conservatives you would have about two-thirds who just go along with whatever the party says and about a third actually do their own thinking and if you were to put this side over here as a graph, you could probably graph it the same way to where about two-thirds, they're just in it, period. And about one-third does its own thinking. Now this morning, if there's a goal that I have, is that every single person listening to me here this morning understands that the goal of Christian education is to actually make people their own thinkers and not mere reflectors of other people's thoughts. So wherever you are on the spectrum, listening live or watching here via live stream, I'm here to challenge you today and make sure that you don't leave the heavy lifting for somebody else somewhere else. And that you understand that at some point in time, humanity with its general tendency to be not herd immune, but herd infected, is going to come to a place where, as the children sang last night, once to every man and nation will come a moment to decide. And if you wait to decide until the pressure is at its penultimate, you will have waited too long. And that if you learn not to follow the conviction of the Spirit born in the truths of the Word, and the principles of true education, which is how this country came to exist, 
the kind of emotional, intellectual, and physical grit to establish a country like this can hardly be imagined. And to keep it a country with freedom is going to require a whole lot more independence of thought and courage of soul than we've been in the habit of exercising in the last generation or two. Now, if you've got your bulletins, go ahead and take them out. And I want to look at the quote. like I'm going to need to borrow a bulletin. Thank you for loaning that to me. Great Controversy, page 572. A day of great intellectual darkness is shown to have been favorable to the success of the papacy. It will yet be demonstrated that a day of great intellectual light is equally favorable for its success. That is a sobering thought. Everybody listening to this message ought to stop and say, what does that mean? If ignorance of limited education, access to the Bible, freedom to respect the individual, educated or not educated, or I should say formally educated or not formally educated, Great intellectual light is equally favorable for its success. In the past ages, where men with without the word and without the knowledge of the truth, their eyes were blindfolded, and thousands were ensnared, not seeing the net spread before their feet. In this generation, there are many whose eyes have become dazzled by the glare of human speculators or speculations. Science falsely so-called. They discern not the net, and they walk into it as readily as if blindfolded. God designed that man's intellectual powers should be held as a gift from his Maker and should be employed in the service of truth and righteousness. Now pay attention to the next phrase. But when pride and ambition are cherished, and men exalt their own theories above the Word of God, then intelligence can accomplish greater harm than ignorance. Thus, the false science of the present day, which undermines faith in the Bible, will prove as successful in preparing the way for the acceptance of the papacy with its pleasing forms as did withholding the knowledge in opening the way for its aggrandizement in the dark ages. Now I'm going to combine with that a quote from the book Education, page 24. When Satan claimed to have received great good by eating of the forbidden tree, he did not let it appear that by transgression he had become an outcast from heaven. 
Here was falsehood, so concealed under a covering of apparent truth. I might add observable, supposed truth. And by the way, spiritualism at the end of the day will be a manifestation of the dark side of occult power that cannot be denied. Spiritualism at its end is the Achilles tendon of empirical science. Think about it. When the demons are working miracles and they are measurable, tangible, and observable, we're going to be in trouble. Eve, infatuated, flattered, and beguiled, did not discern the deception. She coveted what God had forbidden. She distrusted his wisdom. Last sentence, listen carefully. She cast away faith, the key of knowledge. Now, if you think at this moment that there is not science and deception woven together, observable empirical evidence, sometimes falsely so-called science, you better think again. Now, I'm not here today to validate this side, which says the only way the world can be saved is by vaccination. And I'm not here today to validate this side, which suggests that validation is sinful, wrong, or bad. But I am here today to challenge the human tendency to not pray for the key of faith to understand one's own heart and motivation in how one is acting. Because at the end of the day, the final lever to destroy God's people and to herd everybody into perdition will be fear. It will be fear of the ability to put bread on one's table. It will be fear of the ability to keep one's job, as if that even matters at some point in time. It will be fear of being able to live. These are all things we've taught for over a century. They are sober beyond my ability to express. They would be absolutely overwhelming if it were not for the stories of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They would be absolutely crushing if it were not for the stories of apostles and prophets and little children standing up for the living God who stands up for them. If ever there was a day, we needed an education that gave us a living faith. Page 271, book education. We are to ask for the aid and the education of the education and the experience of the angels. And I don't know to what degree she might have been poking as an uncollege educated person at the false level of importance placed on university education, but the direct quote following that 
that you can pray for the education and the experience of the angels to enlighten your mind, she puts, and I directly quote it here, what university course can equal this? That is a direct quote. Check me out. Now, I very much believe in university education. And I very much believe in the benefit of formal training. She writes thousands of pages and hundreds of thousands of words about the largest ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, which is formal education. But for it to go unchallenged as it mirrors the dynamics of the world and misses out on the key at times, not always for sure. We should have to call ourselves simply members of one cult or another. And should we so define ourselves like that, we should confess our sin. For so defining oneself politically in this age of cultish absence of intellectual rigor is a colossal wound on the exceeding nobility and transcendence of the living Christ inhabiting the heart, mind, and the actions of one's life. We are living in an age where probably the great sin is just going along to get along. And as we watch the pendulum swing back and forth between who holds power, our heads must spin and our hearts must quiver at where the final revolutions of this dizzying journey may take us. But we're getting there. We're getting there. I'm holding in my hands this morning a few things that I want everybody to think about. Not as a Republican or a Democrat, by the way. Simply as a thinking individual. From Forbes, five breathtaking numbers reveal the unsettling cost of the stimulus. COVID stimulus price tag, $17,000 per person, $69,000 per family. Here's one from March 11. Federal COVID spending just hit $41,870 per taxpayer. Did you see that much benefit? No, you got $1,400 once and maybe $1,200 the other time. 18 facts on the U.S. national debt that are almost too hard to believe. The United States owes $68,400 per citizen. That means the child on your lap today owes $68,400. The United States owes $183,000 per taxpayer. A current debt of $125 trillion, yes, trillion, in what we call unfunded liabilities. If this was your 401k, you'd be throwing a corporate hissy fit. But because we're all riding down the slippery slope together and life is okay right now, it seems all right. I won't go over the rest of that. I was a little bit stunned, though, when I went to this website which is, uh, what is the national debt today? 
It's in real time. Yesterday afternoon, it was 28 trillion, 220 billion, 556 million, 999,387 dollars. That's, according to this, $85,438 for every single person in America. So that means that my statistic from a web page a few months ago is old. And what really got me is that as you watch this in real time, and you watch the debt go up by $30,000 a second, it's pretty sobering. What am I trying to say to you? That we're going to have to do a little bit more heavy thinking and speaking and engaging than just going along with a little bit of extra money in our back pocket because the government just sent us a bunch of money. So take your Bibles. And I'm going to show you what goes around comes around. Turn to Matthew 26. Matthew chapter 26. Verse 31, then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I say unto you that this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And everybody else in the room said exactly the same thing. Truth number one. There were two cults in the day of Jesus. One was a Judaic cult of a Messiah that did not exist. Two was the cult of Rome that held all the power and could do what it wanted. Peter so belonged to the first cult that he would not surrender his ideas of whom Jesus was supposed to be even though Jesus confronted him over and over again enough so to where talking to the devil as Peter had mouthed his words, Get thee behind me, Satan. The cult was so powerful that even though Jesus raised more than one person from the dead, 
the institution would deem it better for most if he was not walking the face of the planet. The cult of what they wanted and their ideas ran smack into the truth of the God of heaven living in their midst. And Peter becomes so bold as that his, his complete giving over of his intellectual and spiritual and relational self to the ideas he wanted to happen would put him in direct opposition with Jesus at the very moment Jesus needed support, not contradictory adolescent apostolic experience. Now let's go to the second cult. Turn over to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. Chapter 18. Verse 28. John 18, verse 28, Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium. And it was early. They themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled but might eat the Passover. And Pilate went out to them and he said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and they said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. So Pilate said to him, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. And the Jews said to him, We're not permitted to put anyone to death. That was to fulfill the word of Jesus, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. Therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus, and he said unto him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, and he said, Are you saying this on your own initiative? Or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting, which is, of course, what Peter did when the mob came to get Jesus so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born. For this I have come into the world to testify of the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he said this, he went out again to the Jews, and he said to them, I find no guilt in him. Now, I've spent a whole 40, 50, 60 minutes dealing with this man in a previous message. He was not all that bad. He was warned in a dream by his wife. He beheld the divinity veiled by humanity in the presence and the nobility of Jesus. And yet he so subscribed to the other side of the coin, the absolute power of the Roman 
government that he would run over justice and a man with godlike bearing. Now let's go to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 13. Verse 1, and the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and his great authority. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. That's where we are. We're in verse 3. They worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, Who's like the beast? And who is able to wage war with him? There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies. Authority to act for 42 months was given him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle. That is, those who dwell in heaven. It was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority to every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. Verse 8, and all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world from the, in the book of the Lamb, the life of the Lamb, who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. To the question, who is like the beast? We posit the word Michael, who is like God. That God... Jesus came to deliver the world from its tendency to love darkness, to be apathetic, and to let other people do the heavy lifting and carry the intellectual, cognitive, mental load. What is undeniable in this moment is that we live in an anxious society and men's hearts are failing them for fear. And in the midst of that anxiousness, we are willing to stick our heads in the sand And watch one crisis create another. I have had people that I respect sit in meetings with me more than one person, multiples, 
and say that they expect a complete and total financial collapse of this nation in the not-too-distant future. Some have even put time. It doesn't matter whether you're reading from Forbes or the Economic Foundation for Education. They almost all tend to end their articles with statements that say, some point in time, the debt will have to be paid. I'm holding in my hands graphs, which if I had had more time, I would put on the screen for you. But if you'd like to see them, just go to covidgraphs.com or .org, whatever it was. I'm holding a graph that shows by segment of age the number of cases, the number of deaths, and the lethality of the disease. I'm holding another graph that shows the comorbidities of those who die from the disease. According to this graph, if you have no comorbidities, only 10% of those who have died from the disease represent that category. I'm wondering to myself what's happened to my nation where we can have thousands of health professionals sign a document called the Great Barrington Declaration, but you never hear, at least in the mainstream media, you never hear anything to balance out that which would make us all think that we had just encountered the bubonic plague. This church has been open for a year, operating like it operates, singing vigorously. But because a scientist stood at the end of a bed in Washington State and collected an air sample and found some COVID in it, and because we then did what I'll call some sloppy science regards to a choir in Washington, we deemed that all Christian singing in congregations like this must cease and desist and how many people actually went right along with it and did it and how many churches aren't even open yet today we used to say double-blind studies now we're glad with correlation as causation what am I really trying to say? Could you check your motives? Could you make sure you're not in one of these cults? Could you do your own thinking? Could conviction rest upon you as individuals? Could you take a little courage from Jesus' presence in your life and say respectfully and kindly what needs to be said to whoever's in your circle of influence? Could you actually be one of those one-third, if my friend is right, who actually, though they might have a belief system that's on this side or a belief system that's on this side that could say, well, maybe we're trending out of bounds. Maybe what we really believe is blurring us 
And maybe over here what we're really believing is blurring us. Could we be certain at the end of the age that we hold in our hands the key of faith whereby which we can discern what is real knowledge and which is false? And beyond that, I would take us to the end chapters of the book of Revelation which say this, of all those that are outside the city, the first on the list are the fearful. My time is up, but I'm going to say one more thing. I'm absolutely convinced that if America loses its breadth and depth of cultural beauty, it will be because of an absence of leadership where nobody ever challenges anybody. I was on the way to the airport in El Salvador a few months ago and we stopped by a wall of masonry about six feet tall I looked over at it I don't know every word of Spanish for sure but after dozens of trips to Spanish countries I know something but I didn't have to wait very long because the driver interpreted it for me it was a statement made by I believe Edmund Burke And it says, all that has to happen for evil to triumph is for good people. And I did know the last word, to do nada. You know, folks, in the days of the Dark Ages, the ordinary person's opinion was not equal to that of the church. We've come full circle in our age of expertiseism. But if God is really so unfair and unjust that only the best informed can understand what to do, we're in big trouble. Put it a little bit different as a family life educator. I used to say that if you needed a PhD in psychology to have a good marriage, how unfortunate. An age of enlightenment will show itself equally as favorable to the journey to the final cult as a day of darkness. I'm challenging you to be the most prayerful, dignified, respectful people that exist on the face of the planet. And I'm challenging you to stand up, speak up, and don't just watch it all, all the dominoes fall, saying it's not directly affecting me at the moment. I had a conversation with someone like this this week. To their credit, I think they changed their point of opinion. They were just going to let it go thinking it was all going away. And I said, maybe you need to speak up on the front side and change the trajectory. Not mere reflectors of other men's thoughts. And not science falsely so-called. But Jesus, the cult breaker, Abandoned by all. 
Three people on that day said, I'm, I'm going my own way. A thief on the cross called him Lord. A centurion at the foot of the cross said, surely this was the Son of God. And the one who bore the cross made a decision to follow Jesus. We do know Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea came out of the closet and into the light. And beyond those five people, it appears that almost everybody else, including the apostles, followed their disappointments or their ambition and their anger to the destruction of Jesus. I'm appealing to you. If ever we needed the Lord, we sure do need Him now. And ever you needed a real walk with Christ, you sure do need it now. All it takes is for good people to lose their credibility by associating themselves with this side or this side. Just do that. Just blindly follow the cult and lose all your credibility or follow Jesus, the cult breaker, and say, who's like God? And trust Him that wherever He leads you, He'll lead you for glory and victory, even if along the way you're a living sacrifice. Others have done it before us. As I prepared for this message, I looked at those, those drawings of the lions in the Colosseum. It's real. But I've been to Rome three times, and I've taken the tour, and I've stood and actually listened to a Colosseum guide tell us, that's all fable. That was all made up. I couldn't believe it. Science, historical science, falsely so-called. We're living in a strange world where we bend the truth to fit our ideology. Could we please not? And could we follow Jesus who always told the truth in love? Amen.